This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So when I talk about creativity in the fashion industry, it's not just so much that like the way the clothes are thought or made, but it's also the ways in which sustainability can be thought of all along this way. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. So I'm excited to speak with my good friend, Géraldine Blanche. Géraldine is completing her PhD in intellectual property law at the Sciences Po Law School in Paris. She was formerly an associate researcher at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Her research focuses on intellectual property strategies in the fashion industry. Géraldine holds a double matrice degree in French and common law and a master's degree in comparative law from the university Université Paris 10? Yes. <laughs> she also holds an LLM postgraduate law degree in intellectual property law from the George Washington University Law School. Geraldine has practiced law for international law firms in Luxembourg, Paris, focusing on commercial and intellectual property disputes and advising fashion industry clients and lectures on fashion law and management, intellectual property law and fashion theory at Sciences Po and Parsons. Geraldine. Thank you for making the time. Welcome to Politicology. Thank you, Ron. Bonjour. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Let's now talk about fashion in politics. Uh, so when we look at political candidates, right, there's a lot of attention paid to what they wear and how they're dressed. In 2018 and 2020, uh, Beto O'Rourke famously had the jeans and a blue button-down shirt with the rolled-up sleeves that was intended to signal, he's here to work, right? I've got my sleeves rolled up. In 2016, Hillary Clinton's pantsuits got a lot of attention, um, good and bad. Can you talk about the way politicians and candidates try to communicate through what they wear so it's a language. It's a form of communication. You need to understand how people are going to react to it or what they're looking for. It's, I mean, it's basic communication. I'm not a communication specialist, but I would figure, you need to figure out what your audience is looking for and then translate that into, um, into attire in, in what, what, so the rolled up sleeves, for example, is yeah. like, Literally, there's there's the question of rolling up your sleeves to work, uh, showing your muscles and your forearms, yeah. and showing like you're you're pulling up your sleeves because you want to put your hands in uh, in the mess and figure it out, and you know, um, the it's and it's interesting because a lot of people, what was that show? Madam Secretary? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the very first episodes. It's very formulaic. It's good, but it's yeah, very formulaic. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is why I got bored with it. Yeah. But like one of the first episodes I remember watching, um, she is, I think she's an academic yeah. initially, and then she's chosen as Secretary of State, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and who plays it? Uh, Tia Leone? Tia Leone. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a mishap or there's a form of like something 
something she did wrong or like, so she wants to like shift attention. And so because she's a woman, she has um, someone come in and like revamp her style yeah, completely. Right. And so all of a sudden all the press is going like, ooh, and she's like had a makeover. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. She has the makeover. And so, you know, it's the pretty woman moment of like the makeover, the changing, the like the, the out of the chrysalid pops yeah. up, you know, the butterfly. And all of a sudden she draws away attention by what she's wearing and by what designer she's wearing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's politics yeah. because it is one form. It, if you're a political strategist, yes. you're going to use whatever form of communication you can. Yeah. And that is part of the toolbox. Well, one of the things we spend so much time talking about in 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 political strategy and campaigns is the message, messaging. How are we going to communicate to these voters? Uh, 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 and we, we, we often talk about the imagery we'll use in ads. The copy is always yes. incredibly important. But I think... Something that often gets overlooked is, um, well, unless you have a really good image consultant, right? Which sometimes, mm. you know, it, but um, is the message that the nonverbal communication sends, right? Exactly, because it's subtle. Yeah. Because it's all—it's almost subliminal yeah. <laughs> in a way. Um, it's because we are we are creatures. Um, we are social creatures, so we place ourselves in society in knowing what the codes of our society are what is a cons what constitutes conservatism what constitutes liberalism and so we have we kind of stick to these labels different um different forms of expression. So it could be, I don't know, it could be music. Yeah. Music is a form of communication. What type of music are you listening to? Um, says something about you, yeah. um, not just about your taste, but also maybe where you grew up, what your politics may be. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think fashion is, is fascinating because it is a lot more subtle than we, well, it's, it's integrated in a very more subtle way. So you might think that in politics, everyone has a button down shirt, yeah. but it's not just the button down shirt. It's what they wear it with, yeah. how they wear it with. Is it tailored? Is it frumpy? Is it, I don't care. Or is it, I really pay strong attention to it. And sometimes I think even a hairstyle, look at Boris Johnson and his hair. Look at the tan suit that Obama wore. Look at wore, the tan right? suit. The scandal. Right? The scandal. And around. it was. Exactly. It was. Yeah. Um, it is a narrative. So if you're thinking, you know, a political strategy, you might think, yeah, okay, we'll have a, you know, a fashion consultant do yeah. this or that, or choose the color of the tie. Should it be this or should it be? Like, think of a presidential debate in the U.S. Yeah. I'm always, like, curious to see what tie they're going to choose. What color tie is they're going to Is it going to yeah. be red? Is it going to be blue? Like, <laughs> like you know? Because it's uh, yeah. going to be one of those two. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's uh, let's move to iteration and interpretation and inspiration. So like a lot of creative enterprises, fashion develops over time, as you mentioned. Going back to that street clip again, a designer uses a color for gowns that inspires another designer to use it for a jacket that filters down to the clearance sweater. Can you talk about how the creative process plays out over time and how it can bounce from one creative to another? Um. That is a hard question. And then because, this is definitely going to take us into the future of creativity. Yeah. Um, it's a very hard question because the first answer I would give you is that, and I mentioned this already, creativity is specific to every per, every creative. Yeah. They have their own means of expression, et cetera. So the trickle down effect that I was talking about was historically true. It's a lot less the case now. You've got the trickle. Then in in second part of the 20th century, you started having the trickle up where you mm. started. And now it's everywhere. Like all the high, like high-end luxury houses have sneakers and streetwear. All of a sudden you had like you know, what was supposedly considered the the bottom rung of culture that all of a sudden went seeped up. Yeah. Um, and now you have this question of the trickle across. Hmm. Um, so now it's kind of all over the place, not just trickle down, it's trickle up, yeah. it's trickle across, it's et cetera. It's networked. It's networked. 
Um, so when it comes to the bouncing off of creativity, the question isn't so much, well, let's put it this way. The issue that I have kind of, that I've, that the knot that I'm currently thinking a lot about and working with is, um, where does it come from and what tools are creatives relying on in their mm. creative process? Because it's not just, I mean, most of my students aren't, um, it's not the, I don't know, the Christian Dior in the 1950s or the Yves Saint Laurent, whatever. They're not just like got a pen paper and like drawing like crazy. Yeah. Some of them are, but a lot of them function with like mood boards and, mm. you know, and in the industry, you've got a really important, um, part of the business um, and act really important actors, which are forecasters hmm. because you've got a huge industry of fashion forecasting. Yeah. Um, and these are, it must be a fascinating job. These forecasters, they look at um, politics, um, art, culture, um, and they kind of like seep all that information in on our society and then kind of like aggregate that into what the trends are going to be based on these political, cultural trends or what movies are coming right. out, what's trending, right? Yeah. Forecasting is, it's trend forecasting. But not just trend, but, but then you have to go develop that stuff and it's not going to come out for another nine months and you have to know what's Ex going to be trending in nine months. Yeah, but that that is the thing. So that is exactly forecasting. But the thing is because collections are, okay, a, a high street brand like Zara, for example, mm -hmm. they have over 17, 18 collections a year. Um, so wow. yeah. So you can imagine that their creative process <laughs> isn't, they, you don't have, you don't have one person right. who is allowed to work on just one collection or right. two collections a year. Right. They have to constantly be churning stuff out. So when you have to constantly churn stuff out, it's in <sighs> like humanly, it's not possible um, to, to, I, I mean, it's rare, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, if you do, then you're going to reach a point where you're going to burn out, um, or it's going to be less original. Right. So you're going to take shortcuts. Right. So what are shortcuts? It's copying and fast fashion and fast fashion. But this is the thing is that it's, it goes back to the question of time and the question of time and creativity. So that's what I was talking about when I was talking about that knot yeah. that I'm, I'm trying to see, and I'm trying to see how the law can maybe untangle this yeah. or find a solution, yeah. is the question of the the time of creativity. And I think there is something to be said with allowing for time. Yeah. Um, and I, we talked about this, but yeah. I like to draw the parallel with democracy. Right. Like democracy requires time. It requires listening to others, listening and having other people listen to you and finding a common ground and a middle ground. Like there needs to be as human beings, we need time to process. We need, we, yeah. we are not right. algorithms. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so in this question of time and the creative process, you've got shortcuts, you've got copying. Now let's be clear. There has always been copying. Sure. Right. I'm um, currently writing uh, a chapter and it's 19th century, early 19th century copying. And there was already counterfeiting at that point. And, you know, so it's not new, um, but it has an impact on the economy and yeah. on the system. Yeah. The thing is, one of the solutions that people found for a very long time is like, well, if we get copied, then we just have to produce something new. <laughs> and that because it inevitably it will get copied. But right. that has just made the time machine sped up, sped right? up. Everything and it's already up. so fast. Yeah. Um, there is a famous, uh, designer called Azedin Alaya who, um, passed away now, but he retired. Um, um, at one point he retired and I, he gave this big interview in, in a French paper. And he said, I'm retiring because I have no more time for creativity. The Ooh. business aspects of it doesn't allow me to travel, to think, to read, yeah. to, I have to churn out how many collections for my business to be viable. I'm burnt out. Yeah. I can't anymore. I can't follow. Pe some people may be able to do it. Maybe younger people are able to do it, but I can't. So I'm stopping now because I feel my creativity is getting dried up. Wow. And I think that's, so there are two shortcuts that the fashion industry takes. Yeah. There's either the um, fast fashion copying. Yeah. 
et cetera. There's also um, a trend that I find very interesting, particularly for luxury houses, is that they have now built over, like in the past 10 years, huge departments, historical archives, archive departments, Mm. archival departments, where they have historians. They actually employ historians. And the historians will go on eBay or whatever and find like documents and old photographs or old like drawings of like the Dior and the Chanel's and the whatever. And they have, they build up this huge library of archives and so they will have their young creatives. They will say, well, we'll give you access to the archives. Find in the archives something that that is a code of the fashion brand. Oh. And then kind of mix it with something a bit modern maybe. Or So it's- Update it. It's an update yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, but that's interesting because how original is it? Yeah, right. You're just recycling something that's already been done. Yeah. Um, so I'm questioning the future of creativity when it comes to time. Yeah. When it comes to- how sustainable is the creative process I was right ask now? You, what is the, yeah, we should we should we should talk a little bit about the environmental impact yeah. of this of what the fashion industry has become yeah. with the shortcut taking, particularly like that the mass production. Everybody's, I think everybody has a sense of well, this really isn't good, right? That we're wasting some, but I don't think they quite understand the scope, the scale of of what the what the fast what fast fashion has done it's unimaginable and what is the tension within the industry because it's not like you can just turn that off it's unimaginable the effect so uh, people who work on sustainability and fashion you have to think of sustainability all along the lines and the life of a piece of clothing. So sustainability, think of a t-shirt. First of all, in the way it's produced. So the creative who comes up with a t-shirt, how sustainable is their creative process? Meaning, are they churning stuff out and they're getting burnt out? But then there's also the person who's going to make the t-shirt. So maybe somewhere in Southeast Asia, um, how much are they paid? How many hours are they, you know, sitting at a table or at a sewing machine? Um, How much are they getting paid? So you've got the question of sustainability in terms of labor and in right. terms of like, so this is human sustainability, right? Right. right. Physical. Um, but then you have the number of t-shirts that are made. Yeah. Um, the sheer amount of t-shirts because you are going to have a huge retail and you want to sell that all over the world and you want to have how many sizes. And now things have to be very inclusive. So you have to have all mm. types of sizes, right? Um so you overproduce and because it's cheaper to produce in bigger volumes. And that's how, if you are a manufacturer, you negotiate with a retail giant, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're going to ask for bigger volumes because the bigger the volume, the cheaper it is per article of clothing. Um, and then you have the question of sustainability in the transport yeah. and what happens when you've got the pandemic and all of a sudden transport and liability of transport and it doesn't get out of the harbor and whatever. And then you have, you know, the Western big retail giant that goes to the manufacturer actually, no, um, I'm denouncing our contract yeah. and you're supposed to be, you know, you're liable because you didn't, I it didn't get shipped in time, even though, you know, and so the t-shirts are for you, I don't care. I don't want them. Um, so you have a lot of issues like that. You have, you know, David Goliath situations like that. Um, and then imagine if your t-shirts does get, get, does get distributed, how long is it in fashion for? And then how long before people get rid of it? Um, how long does it physically last in someone's cupboard? And then where does it go if they don't want it anymore? Is it donated? Is it thrown away in a landfill? Um, and the so, raw materials. And the raw materials. And so a lot of people think, oh, it's great. You know, I'm going to donate my clothing. Hmm. I did a lot of research, particularly, in, well, France and the donation system, you think that you're doing a good deed and that you your is gonna go on the on the back of someone who needs the t-shirt, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um because we have an over production and an overconsumption we because make, do we make too many clothes? We of course we make too many clothes. We make way too many clothes. But because so many uh, so so much part of the economy relies on this, we just keep churning. And so you have all the unsold. First of all, you have the unsold garments that are burnt. 
um, H&M got into a huge, uh, yeah. It, oh, wow. Yeah. They incinerate so much of their unsold stock. So, you know, pollution. Oh, my God. But then what I found fascinating is I did a little bit of research on the on, for example, a t-shirt, right? That, and someone donates it. Because we have too many clothes, even if you give it to, say, for example, the Red Cross, they receive donations of clothes. What the Red Cross does is that they have too many clothes. Hmm. So what they do is that they sell the clothes back per bulk, per this many euros per, you know, many kilos. Yeah. They sell them to other wholesalers who usually are located um, on the African continent who buy basically by the kilo. By the kilo, the unwanted, i.e., you could call it trash. Yeah. Um, that they send then to Africa. And then they themselves try to recycle what's good, what's not good. So some of it might be beautifully recycled and go into, I don't know, isolation materials for new houses or whatever. That is um, like the minimal part of it. Most of it ends up in um, markets um, in Africa that is sold for very little. So you might say, but that's good. That's recycling. Yes. But that also means that the African continent is overflowing with Western unwanted clothes. So basically our trash, let's put it that way. And it means that when you talk about creativity and and culture in Africa, they are overtaken by you know the cheap. How do they express their own culture? How many? How much creativity can there be when there's an overflow of of um, of, of the remnants uh, exactly of the Western world. of the Western world? And it works with plastic. It's exactly the same with plastic. Um, and so. A lot. So a lot of these brands are saying, "Oh, we're super good. We're super good with the environment." Bring our clothes, bring your clothes back to us and we'll give you a gift certificate, right? But they're giving you a gift certificate, but they are selling back these clothes to other people. So they're making a profit out of it too. It's a new business model. Um, But at the end of the day, there's one issue. The t-shirt remains. How long does it take for a t-shirt to decompose? To decompose. I don't know. And where does it end? In a landfill somewhere. So it's a never ending problem. And- so when I talk about creativity in the fashion yeah, industry, yeah. it's not just so much the, the like the way the clothes are thought or made, mm-hmm. but it's also the creative process and creativity in fashion, which I think needs to be fostered, can law help to do this, is the ways in which sustainability can be thought of all along this way. Yeah. Like I wish there was some kind of like hackathon or like some kind of like whatever thon of like (laughs) finding solutions for the fashion industry all along the line. Can sustainability become profitable? I don't have the answer Mm. and it should. That is how things are going to change because fashion is here to stay. We always want, whether we like, as we said, whether we like it or not, we're always going to wear something. Yeah. 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 Because whether we like it or not, fashion is also functional. It protects us from the cold, from yeah. the heat, from et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Or it can also be, you know, um, religious or, but so we're always going to have some form of attire of clothing. Yeah. Um, so. It's a lot more deep than, uh, than you would otherwise know if you're just casually shopping for it's not frivolous you know, cheapish clothes it's not or frivolous. Yeah, no. fashion is not frivolous there's a huge impact as a consumer <sighs> yeah oh so much impact in that choice that you make and what you pay for are there some shorthand um rules or takeaways or some, if, you know a couple of little mm-hmm. nuggets that people could you know tuck away in their mind the next time they go shopping it's very difficult because you everything that I've talked about from the transport to the production to the creative yeah. process, whatever, nothing is perfect. Yeah. Um as a, f- a consumer, you really have no control no. over that. A few things though. Um one of the things that well that I try to implement myself, and I am by no means perfect. Um, first of all, if there are certain countries where if I find in a high street store, I find something at a specific, very cheap price. Um, but once again, I think we've been so 
jarred by like, what does it really actually cost to make a white t-shirt yeah. in a sustainable manner? How much does it cost? Uh-huh. I have no idea. And it's not, and it, believe me, it's not a $2. <laughs> it's not $2 <laughs> for a t-shirt. It's way more than that. Anyways, um, if I find things at a certain very low price that, for example, has beading on it, um, and it comes from certain Southeast Asia countries, if there's beading on it, you're practically certain that somewhere along the line, a kid made that. Oh, wow. Because, um, because their hands are small, because their hands are small and nimble and they can, they can bead much faster. Like there's an embroidery much faster. Um, that's, yeah, that's something that, that really struck me a few years ago. So, um, that's for sure. Generally speaking, I mean, the, the perfect solution. Other than trying to buy fewer clothes that last yeah, longer yes, and, of you know, course, and better quality. How, yeah. like, think about, um, first of all, mending your own clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Is that like, you know, the old image of like women darning their socks. <laughs> um, yeah. Like how many of you can actually sew a button, sew back, a button, on. Sew a button back on? Yeah. Um, sewing a button back on or making something last a longer, like a longer period patching of time, your jeans. patching your jeans. Um, and I think there's, there is starting to be a whole economy of like patching up. Yeah. Um, at least there is in France. Um, and I have a lot of it's students. Fashionable. Yeah. And yeah. it can be very fashionable. Yeah. Secondhand is starting to be yeah, fashionable. Right. Um, which leads to its own IP issues. Oh boy. <laughs> because if you've got a protection on a design or a logo. Yeah. Um, what happens if someone sell, sells on a secondhand, um, platform, um, internet platform, um, they sell, they're kind of like, they are samplers. It's the problem is sampling and intellectual property. Yeah. You've probably heard of the new yep. Beyonce album and the question of sampling. She's and in the, a lot of trouble. She's a lot of trouble. It's exactly the same thing. What if I am a, a designer and I promote sustainability. So I go to thrift stores and I buy old clothes and I take bits and pieces of different things and make it into a new piece of clothing. What happens if I take a piece of clothing that has, I don't know, the Burberry, um, classic, you know, check pattern, you know, um, and, and I, and I put that on a piece of clothing and it identifies Burberry. Am I, is it a trademark infringement? Am I infringing on Burberry? Because it's not a piece of clothing from Burberry. It's mine. Right. Am I allowed to right. use that right. or not? Right. Yeah. Um, Is it fair use? Fair use. <laughs> um, and, and it's a problem that a lot of the luxury industry is currently facing. Because at the same time, you have a whole niche of new designers and new creatives who are like, we want to be more sustainable. We want to put our spin on something. Mm. So if they start banging and and like suing these young creatives saying you're infringing upon our rights um, then they also kind of look bad in a communication point of view like you were stopping people who have you know a a good ethical manner who are trying to do something about it yeah right okay yeah (laughs) all right let's uh let's i was going to ask you about the impact of you know counterfeiting so we we went there naturally but i want to talk about um fashion and ai Mm -hmm. and the future of creativity the way you think about it a couple of months ago i uh, spoke with nina schick about deep fakes um which are ai generated videos and one of the concerns she talked about was ai generated music um, because AI can replicate music from a recording artist or mimic an artist's voice now uh, to the point where it's 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 indistinguishable from 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 an authentic uh, vocal pattern. So how are you thinking about the future threats to intellectual property rights in fashion when a computer can mimic or design a pattern? We were talking earlier about the 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 Rembrandt painting. Maybe you can use that as an Example. Um, I, I love, so it's not fashion related, but it has to do with intellectual property and the future of intellectual property. So um, it's the question of specifically copyright and the author. Um, and uh, if a computer comes up with a work of art, then who owns the copyright? Yeah. Um, and this was, as I, I think it was in 2000, I can't remember when it was, like maybe six, seven years ago. 
there was a, um, it was in Netherlands, Netherlands, and there was some bank, I think it was ING, who, um, and they're like an online bank. And so their whole communication was like, you know, using online and internet and future technology, whatever, we're going to use AI. And they financed this whole research project about, could we create a new Rembrandt? Mm. And so they put, and the idea was to use AI to delve even deeper into Rembrandt and his work and his creative process and his methodology, um, which as a researcher is fantastic, right? To start getting all these answers. And so they used AI and they scanned every work of Rembrandt. So not, and they came up with what would be the typical Rembrandt painting. So not just the subject. So they analyzed all of Rembrandt's painting and all the subjects. And so they threw all of AI and the AI came up with, it has to be um, the face and the image of a man, approximately 35 to 40 years old, uh, and has to wear a white collar and this and that and the other. So they had a kind of like a subject. And mm-hmm. then they also studied um, the relief of every single painting of Rembrandt. So his brush strokes, mm. how he added paint on top to, you know, for light and for, for shadow and like all this. So it wasn't just the subject. It was actually the physical aspect of like the painting, right? The, the 3D yeah. painting. Yeah. And with that, they created, they put it through a 3D printer. And with- So it's like, not a digital image. No, it's not a digital image. So it was through, through a 3D printer, they really created a, a perfect Rembrandt painting using the type of brushstrokes he would have used. Everything with like, it's, wow. it's fascinating. I'll, wow. If you're interested, yeah. I might send you the clip yeah. of like the, and yeah. Maybe we can link to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah link to it. Um, And so it was fascinating. So all of a sudden you had a new Rembrandt and you see the image at the end and they, you know, they unveil it and you're like, wow, that's cool. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. But it's not signed by Rembrandt. No. It's not a Rembrandt. Who's the author? But it is. Who's the author? Um, So intellectual property law will tell you, well, it's the person who's behind the algorithm, behind the coding that goes into it, that the author of the code, computer programs are protected by copyright. So it's a bunch of ones and zeros. It's considered a language that's protected like any other form of language, whether it's music on a music, on a sheet of music or words um, on a page. Um, And so that's the author. But the question with the future of creative, so that was just one example, which was great because it asked, I used it as a case study um, in some of, my, some of my classes. Another case that I like to, to sometimes come up with is the, the grinning, uh, the grinning um, monkey. The, the famous case of there's a photographer, wildlife photographer, and he was, I can't remember where, and he was uh, like shooting all these um, uh, photos of, all, of, of a specific type of monkey. And all of a sudden, one of the monkeys took his camera ah. and literally made a selfie. Oh, that's right. right? I think I remember, remember that? This. Yeah. Um, and so, and then because of social media, because his photo, and like, the monkey is having, has such a fantastic, massive grin on his yeah. face. Yeah. Um, it's just a brilliant photo and it's perfectly framed, you name it. And so the thing is a lot of people use that photo and he uh, claimed copyright over it saying like all these people are using this photo and I'm not getting any yeah. fina- like financial benefit this out is, of this. This, this, is is, this is my photo. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, no, it's not your photo. It's the monkey's photo. <laughs> um, but can a monkey be an author right. in law? Um, and I think it was WWF, uh, who, uh, was a party to the case and said, well, actually this was a perfect case to, you know, to forward totally. animal rights yeah. because all of a sudden can an animal hold property? Like you're, you're coming to really almost philosophical yeah. questions around it. Right. So that's a, that's a brilliant case. Um, but coming back to AI, there's the question oh, what of- What was the outcome? Do you remember? Do you recall? Um, yes. Uh, he- he lost, oh God, actually, you know, okay. uh-huh. I think that there were a couple, like it went, it appealed and et cetera. But ultimately I remember the photographer 
and this is an interesting thing in law, is that he ultimately lost way more money actually uh, suing. Right. And so and right. so he lost on all, like- Got it. Wow. Because he didn't make any money out of it and it even cost him more in like wow. fees. But I thought, I, I remember it because it really brings up to the light of like, who is an author? Who right. can be an yeah. author? Right, so, which is now where we are. Exactly. Yeah. Can a machine be an author? Can an algorithm be an author? Of course right. an algorithm cannot be an author. But the thing is, sometimes the algorithm by nature evolves by itself. Right. So it's not necessarily a person, the person who created it in the first place. Yeah. The algorithm has changed since then. Yeah. A person may write the initial set of rules exactly. for the algorithm, but if the algorithm is learning on exactly. its own, those rules are changing exactly. autonomously. Exactly. And that is a huge, fascinating, but very problematic yeah. issue. So coming back to fashion, um, you know, I talked about trend forecasting yeah. and I talked, so a lot of the trend forecasting now uses AI for mood boards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you'll have, and, and think about it, even if most of my students, for example, they'll use like, they're on social media all the time. So they'll like screenshot and add to like, they have amazing apps to do these mood boards and to get inspired, et cetera. So first of all, they're getting inspired by things that are very often not in the public domain, but who right. cares? There's so much content that we don't know what's public or private and we don't care anymore. So that I have an issue with. Yeah. So I need to, you know, recentralize that and like focus with them saying, reminding them there is private property and there's public property. Yeah. Um, but once again, it's not because there are IP rights that people don't yeah. copy right. Yeah, <laughs> illegally. Right. right? right. Um, and then the, the, the other issue is where like, if you don't know where creativity comes from, like how do you determine, you don't know the source. Right. So you don't know who's the one putting in a creative process. You, yeah. So how do you determine if there's a property to begin with? Um, and social media has really blurred all that. Now, oh my God, yeah. a couple of years ago when I was a practitioner, I, I had a job of like going through the terms and conditions. And this was like, way before social media blew up, <laughs> but the terms and content, terms and con conditions of a, a big, what is now a big social media uh, company. And I had to read their terms and conditions. Um, I was working at the time in Luxembourg for Luxembourgish law to see if it was, you know. And so for the first time in my life, I wasn't pressing on, I agree. <laughs> I was actually being the lawyer and Download. reading like- <laughs> Print, and email, read, yeah. e email this to me. <laughs> and I was, and I read all the terms and conditions and it was for a music service platform. And I remember I like, I was, it was just scary to me as a lawyer, how much I was actually handing over by clicking. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when it comes to intellectual property for platforms, social media platforms that have what is now called content, which is a word that drives me up the wall. Um, you know, the TikToks and the Instagrams and the whatnots and the metas and, um, you transfer so much of your rights to them without yeah. knowing that yeah. you do that. They, they have so much use over your, once again, content. Yeah. Um, and it has an impact on the creative system because on the one hand, you have an overflow of information that you can get your creativity from. So it seems like it's this big free bucket of stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's never entirely free because a lot of that stuff actually belongs initially someone, but then it's transferred over to you're these paying tech with your companies. Data. Yeah. yeah. You're paying for all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, you know that if it's free, yeah. you're, 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 you're the, the product, product, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so I ask my students to really think about their creative process, but how else are they going to right now be able to churn out a creative, like creativity without having yeah. access to social, they need it. Yeah. Um, and so coming back to AI, um, AI now is the only thing I think that's capable over years and years and years to trend forecast and to foresee what people are going to want to buy. Yeah. And it's, it's the only thing that the only tool that allows you to do that 16 times a year. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. So what and is now this? the AI is not now the AI is not anymore just um, predicting what's no. going to be popular, but it's now also 
creating what is good. Yeah. What the, the, the material itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not just predicting it's right. telling it's yeah. Right. Um, which is and, exactly what the, sorry, as a detour, this is exactly what the conversation is around Facebook's intellectual property, its <laughs> own algorithm and whether or not yeah. that should be made a little bit more transparent or, you know, to what extent the Facebook, the Facebook people themselves don't even know no, what's going on not. in the algorithm because it's teaching not. itself. Exactly. Now. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. Which begs the question of how, where is it going to take us? Like yeah. thinking, and we're not thinking like on a long term of like a decade. We're yeah. thinking on the long term, at least in fashion, of yeah. two years, yeah. three years, right? right? Yeah. Um, so what are the solutions? And you've got to reconcile this also with the fact that the production system and everything like it is, it is just too fast producing too much pollution producing, you know, yeah. um, but you can't do away with it. Yeah. And you can't just say, stop the fashion industry doesn't exist anymore. Look right. at the weight it has economically yeah. speaking. Right. Um, even millions for millions of people depend millions, on the industry for their jobs. Right. And even think, uh, I mean, and I'm just thinking of the, in France, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Our yeah. exports. Yeah. If you no no more, no more, you know, production yeah. or whatever. Right. So, um, interestingly enough, uh, not long ago, the French government, so the French government has been passing a couple of laws that deal with sustainability. Um, and the first one had to do with food waste and how supermarkets, uh, when, you know, the past date of like, I don't know, yogurt or whatever, it still actually has a, a shelf life. Yeah. And so nothing should be wasted. Nothing should be. So restaurants, what they don't sell has to be uh, given to, uh, I don't know, charities or whatever. So there's this whole, uh, this, this whole law about food waste. And then the government said, well, the next level is going to be fashion. Um, because we need to, you know, we're yeah. country of fashion. Let's give a good example, et cetera. So president Macron kind of, uh, I think it was a G8 meeting, uh, to, like before the pandemic. Yeah. And so they had a big round table. He kind of asked like some of the big actors in the fashion industry to get around a table and start thinking. Um, and then there's a law on, uh, anti-waste law that was passed that supposedly the fashion industry has to align with. So they have, they have an, a, a specific timeline by which all this has to be implemented, but it's not easy. Once again, for intellectual property reasons, for example, um, you're not allowed to waste anything. So what happens if you do a prototype, say you're in a big luxury yeah. fashion house right. and you are super, you spend time and you actually put creativity to come up with, I don't know, a new bag that's different, new shape, original, blah, blah, blah for the future collection. Um, what happens if ultimately the head of like the artistic director goes like, no, you know, that prototype, we're not going to use it. Right. That prototype is full of intellectual property of creativity. You don't want a competitor to get the hands no. on that shape or, you know, so, but the thing is the law on waste says you're not allowed to destroy it because you're wasting leather and you're destroying leather, you are not allowed to destroy, to burn because it's environmentally unfriendly scraps and waste. Everything okay. has to be recycled to the max, specifically if you have a full bag. So okay. what are you going to do? Are you going to rip off the name and sell it as a, you know, a prototype? Like mm. you don't want to do that because it's your creativity that right. is walking out the door. So they have to find new ways of recycling, of saying, okay, well, should we put the Put it in the back? vault, save it for next season. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, save it. Yeah. But then how much are you saving and how much yeah. space is that right, taking? Right, right, right. And, you know, yeah. and so that requires that in the creative process, nothing should be wasted. And that is Oof. not how things That's have been done. That's not how creativity works. No. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. complex. Very complex, very different layers. Okay, before we wrap up, is there is there anything we haven't touched on yet? Yeah. That you think would be probably really I mean there's so yeah, much so yeah, much. it feels like we've, um, we've tugged in a lot of threads here. I think the the last thing that maybe I want to talk a little bit more about is the question of time. Um I I mean I've touched yeah. on it a few times, but 
I want really people to think of, I talk to my students about this all the time. How long does it take you to create something that you feel is uniquely original and uniquely Mm. you and your expression of your creativity? How long does that take you? Um, Because I think there's a lot of value in that. Like it's a question of your own value. Now, some students may tell me, well, actually, you know, some of the best things that I'd done, I did kind of like overnight, like, you know, a singer songwriter who might say, well, all of a sudden, yeah, I was in a bath and then boom, the song and the lyrics came out yeah. and then I just wrote them and that was it. Right. Yeah. That's very, very unusual. It's very unusual. Um, did you ever see the movie yesterday? Do you remember no. that movie? Oh, um, about in a world where all of a sudden from overnight, the Beatles never existed. Oh, you have to watch that oh, movie. No. Wow. Um, it's a, it's a great British comedy, and all of a sudden the Beatles never existed. Wow. And this guy, he remembers the Beatles, and so he's a phalanx oh, singer songwriter. I, I saw the trailer for this. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I would recommend watching. Okay. It's, a, it's a good watch. Okay. Um, and one of the interesting things is that he has a kind of an Ed Sheeran plays in it. Yeah. And Ed Sheeran, you know, positions himself as like the best singer songwriter right. of his age. And he just like and, rewrites all the original Beatles songs. And, yeah, exactly. Yet. And he yeah. comes up with like like, okay, let's have a, at one point they have a creative battle. Yeah. And he's like, okay, you know, in half an hour we'll see who comes up with the best song. Yeah. And I can't remember. And so when the guy pulls out, I can't remember which Beatles <laughs> hit it is yeah. in like 20 minutes or whatever. And Ed Sheeran goes like, oh yeah, no, I you win. Um, and so there's, I found it fascinating because they're a question of that time of creativity. But even if you do create something like in 10 minutes, it doesn't, it hasn't taken you 10 minutes. It's taken you your entire life until mm-hmm. then and 10 minutes. Like I tell my students, like, you know, that your value, like right now you're, you're, you're paying for your education. That is, you're putting, it, you're putting money into yeah. your creativity. And like, it's not just the time of the creation. It's everything that has percolated that has taken you to that time where all of a sudden the planets have aligned and you produce something at that time. Something triggered yeah. you at that time to create it. Yeah. Um, how long does that take you? And I think that we are, because of social media and because of the fact that we're not talking about art anymore, we're talking about content, art, and I said this before, yeah. serves the purpose of, it's only there as a means to serve an algorithm now. The algorithm isn't serving the work. It's the opposite, right? Yeah. Um, and it has an impact on the time of creativity. Yeah. We don't really care about the quality of something anymore. Yeah. I, I'm generalizing, but... We care more about the price. Mo- can, most well, people care most about... The branding. Yeah. Right? The number of followers is yeah. something... Like if someone wants to... Uh, what is the safest bet for a company? Yeah. It's probably to find an influencer that has a lot of followings because what's good, what you need are is the most the, the more eyeballs, the most number of eyeballs, the most number of like you need yeah. the biggest yeah. potential you know coverage of eyeballs and attention. Yeah. Well, at the public corporation level, it's how can we show the most profits on our next quarterly earnings report? Exactly. Right? That's like yeah, exactly pro- as fast exactly. as possible. Right. Exactly. So you're going to take shortcuts and you're going to you know, go with things that are heavily branded at a specific time, but that probably ain't going to, you know, they're not going to last that long. Right. So I question where we're going with creativity in our world. I'm not saying there isn't creativity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what form does it take? And I think one of the keys to thinking about it is the question of time. Hmm. Now, time is relative. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, um, we talked about this and I, I, uh, it's still, you know, it's it's relative and I'm writing a PhD and I've been (laughs) working five years on it and it has to, I have to finish at one point. Um, so maybe, you know, I'm just preaching for the choir because I feel that my PhD has taken five years to come where it is right now. Um, even though my supervisor really wants me to finish. Um, it's, I think it's important. Just just generally as a takeaway, time of creativity. And, you know, everyone can be creative and whatever yeah. it, because it's a means of expression. But where does the where is the value? I I think there's something to be said about time and the valuing of time. On that note, before I let you go. Yes. Where can everybody find you on the internet? Is your <laughs> Oh, oh I was, they? I was you want dreading them to? this question. <laughs> um, yes. Um, 
I can I mention the, the yeah, the, you yeah can okay, right. So I I was I read something recently. It's a uh, he's a YouTuber. He's an Australian YouTuber. He wrote a book called I think the brain is a it's not a steamboat. Anyways, his name is Campbell Walker, and he just came up with this comic book which talks about mental health uh, and creativity. Um, and in his introduction, he says something along the lines of our brains are canaries in a coal mine. Hmm. Um, and that we, we're basically guinea pigs for our descendants and the brains of our descendants to see how much content we can or should be dealing with in our brains. Like how far can we go? How much can our brains take? Um, so we're kind of guinea pigs and we don't know the impact uh, of, of social media and content yet. We not are the, it, not, not, not entirely, not entirely. Yeah. We, we get a sense, but yeah. I, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And that really hit me. Um, he also talks about a data where like he says a human being in, in the year 2000, a year of data produced by a human being in the year 2000 over a year is what a human being will produce in nine minutes in 2025. And oh, I mean, that, it made me very nervous. <laughs> and for some reason, those are the two things that really struck me and made me question. And I, I was feeling I was, I had content overload. Um, and also because I need to write my PhD, I felt I was too distracted, <laughs> but I, I really, the, the, the idea of the canary in the coal mine really made me nervous. Um, so I am on social media a lot less, now. <laughs> but I will, so I'm not on Twitter. Um, I will happily, uh, share my email with you and you can, and anyone Great. who wants to know, I yeah. happily, um, but they can find me on Instagram. I go and check it about once a week. I try to open Instagram only once a week now. Um, and it's called, my account is called designed by law. Um, so you can find me there and I will respond. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Geraldine. Launch. Thank you so much for making. Thank you for having this me. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.